Well, I have a story to start with. Phone the story goes that there was this married couple. Let's call them Bob and Pam. They were flying home one day from a 40th anniversary trip. Um, all of a sudden, the airplane starts making noise and shuddering and losing altitude. The pilot comes on and says that he has some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that they've experienced engine failure and they're going to have to make an emergency landing. It's bad news. The good news is that he's located an uncharted desert island to land on so that they should be completely safe. You can look out the window, he says, there it is, you can see it. But I have more bad news. The rest of the bad news is that this island isn't on any maps, so they'll probably never be discovered, and they'll have to spend the rest of their lives living there like Gilligan on his island. Bob turns to Pam and says, Honey, did we pay our pledge to the church this year? Pam says, Bob, why on earth do you care about that at a time like this? Bob says, I need to know, Pam, I need to know. And she answers back, no, Bob, we haven't paid it yet this year. We're late on our pledge. And Bob gets this big grin on his face, and he gives her a giant kiss, just like on their wedding day. And she says, what was that about? And he says, don't worry. Wherever we are, the pastor will come and find us. <laughs> so I tell that not only because it's a joke, um, but also because it gets at a common feeling during stewardship season, of which we are, of course, in week two. Here we are in the second week of stewardship month. I think it can be easy sometimes to feel like, well, we're being guilted into giving, or like religion is being used as yet another fundraising tool. I wonder if we ever feel that way. Well, it's undeniable that the church has been guilty of that sometimes. I'm thinking especially of, say, televangelists who need one more private plane. But the fact is that even though Jesus wasn't trying to raise a nickel for his ministry or any other ministry, he talked about money all the time. So there's something going on about money that doesn't have to do with fundraising that Jesus cared about. He talked about money not because he was guilting people into giving it to him. He talked about money because he knew the spiritual effects that money has on our lives. He knew the power that money has to draw us away from God and the kind of life that's really valuable. So that's why we have to talk about money too. It's really not so much about fundraising as it's about whether we're going to let money become an idol that keeps us from God. Jesus puts it as a stark choice. No one can serve two masters, he taught. You cannot serve both God and money. So why does Jesus make such a big deal about money? We'll get to the story of the widow's might eventually. Um, but let's start with one of his other most well-known stayings. Where your treasure is, Jesus taught, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice what he's saying here. I think he's saying that our heart will follow where we put our money or our treasure. 
where we decide to spend our money on something or where we, where we give it away, that's eventually what our heart will come to love. So if you spend your money on the kinds of clothes or the model of car that says to the world that you've reached a certain level of sophistication and status, well, we're in danger of becoming the kind of person whose heart is set on being seen that way. Or if you spend your money all on yourself instead of being a generous giver, well, then we're in danger of being the kind of person whose God is really ourselves. I think Jesus means for us to hear this and take a hard look at ourselves. Where's my money going? How is it shaping me? And what does it say about what I really love, about what I really worship? The preacher Andy Stanley, a popular writer from Georgia, says that the Bible views money as something like a drug. From the Bible's point of view, he says, every dollar bill should come with a little warning label attached to on it, say with a little sticker for a, for a list of its side effects. It should say something like, warning, money is known to the kingdom of God to be highly addictive. Use only as needed and with caution. Side effects may include greed, pride, and taking the place of God in your heart. I'll talk a little bit about those side effects. The first two side effects, greed and pride, are temptations for all of us, I think, but they get more tempting the more money that we have. It's funny, you might think that people who have more money tend to give more away since they don't need it. Some people do. But actually, in the aggregate, the opposite is usually true. Statistics show that past a certain fairly modest level, people who make more money usually give a smaller and smaller proportion away, the more that they make. That's the opposite of what you'd think, right? Well, it's because of what Jesus says. When you have money, you're in danger of setting your heart on money. So you don't want to let it go. The more you have, the less you want to let it out of your grip. The more you get, the more you want. I'm told that if you really want to offend someone in uptown Dallas... Just call them a $30,000 millionaire. All of the show, none of the dough. <laughs> Every so often, driving around in Dallas traffic, I get a little nervous. I don't know about you. Because it occurs to me that I'd better not run into the car in front of me because it's probably worth about as much as my house. Not kidding. About as much as my house. America is a ridiculously prosperous country. And the lure of money is strong pretty much anywhere in this country, but I think it can be especially strong here. And so Jesus says, to those of us in Dallas, to those of us who have money, watch out. Money and status and stuff can become your God. Your career can become your place of worship. You can wind up trading away everything that truly matters in life, even God himself. Another saying from Jesus, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And since I'm on the subject of $30,000 millionaires, lest we think that Jesus is only talking about those North Dallas one percenters, keep in mind, 
according to the World Bank, to be in the top 1% of world income, you have to make about $35,000 a year. More of us might be rich, according to Jesus, than we might think. So, greed and pride. They're deadly sins that we're all tempted with. The tradition calls them deadly sins because they lead us away from God and the life that truly lasts and lead us instead toward empty things that fade away. Just lead to death. That's what it means. But for many of us, they're far from the only temptation that money brings. Money can take the place of God in our hearts. And one powerful way it does this is by becoming our source of security. I think if we're honest, many of us are a little anxious when the topic of money comes up in a sermon because money just makes us anxious. We look to money to provide us with the safety and security that we're not really sure we trust God to provide. That's, that's, the, that's what both of uh, the Old Testament and the Gospel stories are getting at, isn't it? People who are trusting God to provide. We don't give because unlike the widows in those stories, we're afraid of not having enough. The idea of giving to God makes us anxious. Because if we did, we'd need to actually mean what it says on the back of every dollar bill. That is, not in money we trust, but in God we trust. Now I should say, I need to say, sometimes we don't give, or at least we don't give as much as some might, because we feel like we're in over our heads. We don't know how to keep ourselves above water financially. One recent study, I saw this in the news, showed that 78% of all full-time employees in this country live paycheck to paycheck. And 56% said that they're in more debt than they know how to manage. That's people who are going to work every day. Honest laborers. I wouldn't feel right if I told you that the solution to their problems is always just to give more and trust God. Absolutely, we should always trust God. But good biblical stewardship also involves being financially responsible making a plan to get out of the financial traps that too many of us have fallen into. It involves things like making a budget and sticking to it, getting rid of credit card debt, setting aside an emergency savings fund, and living within our means. So if, you're, if any of this sounds like you, if you're anxious about money, there is a way out. And I just want to say that if you contact me or contact people at the diocese, there are free resources available and people who can help you make a financial plan. I think if I preached about stewardship and didn't mention that, it wouldn't be right. And some of us, for some of us, that can be a really big step to financial freedom. And it can give us the freedom to give more than we ever thought we could. For many of us, though, it's probably the case that we really can and should be giving more than we do, both to the church and to other worthy causes. And for many of us, we won't get over our fear and anxiety, paradoxically, unless we start to give more, so that we see for the first time that we really do have enough and that God, not money, really does provide for our needs. The question usually comes up, 
How much should I give? Well, the simple answer is that the biblical benchmark is the tithe of 10%. It was adopted by the Episcopal Church as well. And it's a good answer to start with because for many of us, it's far more than we're actually giving. And it shows us what it means to be a generous giver. Something in that neighborhood of 10%. It's the benchmark. If that shocks us as being far too much, it might be a sign that the God of money has us in its grips. That's the short answer. I start there. But the complex answer is actually, I think, that for some people, 10% is too much, and for others, it's not enough. Why? Well, the Bible, and we saw this in the psalm and in both of the stories, the Bible talks often about the importance of giving to widows and orphans in their distress. That's a quote from the epistle to James. In an economy, back in Bible times, when men owned most of the property, widows and orphans basically meant people who, through no fault of their own, couldn't support themselves. People who tried but struggled to meet basic needs like food and shelter and care for their kids. The widow in today's gospel lesson is such a person. Same thing in the Old Testament story. The widow put in two copper coins, and Jesus tells us that she gave all she had. That was it. It's helpful, however, to understand that she actually wasn't responsible for giving the tithe according to biblical law. Tithes were to be paid, in essence, by people who owned property. You were supposed to bring 10% of your first fruits, your grain, whatever it might be, to God. The widow here didn't own property, and so she actually didn't have an income to tithe. She gave a beautiful gift of her own free will, and Jesus commended her for it, but the biblical law didn't require it. So those of us who are in her shoes, who struggled to provide basic needs like food or shelter or health care for ourselves and for our children, I think the Bible doesn't want to burden us to tithe if we're in that situation. If that's you, you should give what you can and then offer your service and your prayers to God. For others of us, though, 10% might not be enough. We may have a nice house, food on the table, savings, good health insurance, all of that. And so giving 10% might be a little like going out to dinner and leaving God what amounts to a fairly lousy tip, 10%. Be assured, however, that God does not just want our tips for his service. The gospel reading today, Jesus condemned the rich people who gave large sums to the temple, but who simply gave out of their abundance. You might say, their leftovers, while the widow gave to God all that she had. So without knowing your own particular situation, I can't set you a percentage. I can't answer that question. 10% is a good benchmark for most of us, but you individually might be called to 2% or 20. I don't know. What I can do is ask you to really pray about your pledge. It should either, the, the stewardship letter should either have already come to your house or it'll be there early on in the week. Consider whether there's something keeping you from giving more, something that's actually keeping you from giving your whole heart to God. However much we give, it shouldn't be out of guilt or because this church needs money. 
Of course, the church does need money. We have here a precious little slice of the kingdom of God and its wondrous diversity, and none of it would be possible without the people who give to support it. But don't give just because this church needs it. Give instead because we need God so that we can reach out to our neighbors who need God too. Give because we all need to be free of the grip that money has on our hearts, of greed and pride and the anxious worry that we need every cent because we can't depend on God. Give because when you give to God and to the kingdom of God, that is what your heart will begin to love. I close with another saying of Jesus. Give, our Lord tells us, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Amen. Amen. Amen.